9. Rain my best field was by making extensive excursions into the domains of the Tarahuare in company with an intelligent interpreter, and there was the rub. There are in this part of the Sierra a certain number of men who make a living by dealing with the Indians, and who, having been born and bred in the country, speak the difficult language of the Tarahuares as well as the Indians themselves. But as each man operates in a certain district and has a monopoly of the trade with the Indians within its confines, the temptation to cheat the unsophisticated natives out of their little property is naturally very great, and by far the greater number of the dealers succumb to it. As soon, however, as one of them is found out, he loses his influence with the Indians, and to go with a man of that stamp would have been disastrous to my purpose. The duty of the Languars, as the interpreter is called, is to smooth the traveler's way among the distrustful Indians with skillful words, to get provisions, make bargains, and explain to the Indians the purpose of his visit. Last but not least, he must obtain all possible information from them. This may mean one day's hard work, and the trying of his patience with many apparently futile questions which are made to get at the Indians' real meaning. Thus it may be understood how one is completely at the mercy of one's languors, and how important it is for the success of an expedition to find the right man. There is nothing else to do but to try and try again, one after another. The Indians near Guachalchik seemed all to be depressed, poor, and hungry. Most of their animals had died from lack of food, and the few that had not succumbed to starvation had to be sold in exchange for corn. A couple of Indians who were on their way to peril to buy wheat died of starvation before they reached their destination. The Indians ascribed the hard times to the presence of the whites, who had deprived them of their lands as well as of their liberty. The gods, as they put it, were angry with the whites and refused to send rain. In the summer, especially in July, a false truffle is found on the highlands of Guachalchik, which serves as a food to the Indians. It grows abundantly a couple of inches below the ground, raising the earth a little, and is found also under the limb of a fallen tree. The dogs help in finding this fungus, and they are so fond of it that they go of their own accord to look for it. Pigs grow fat on this food, and coyotes, bears, and gray foxes also eat it. It is considered by Professor W.G. Farlow as a variety of Melanogaster variegatus, which he calls Mexicanus. It tastes like an overripe pear, with a flavor of onion when one first bites into it. The ordinary Melanogaster variegatus is eaten in Europe, and esteemed for its pleasant taste. It was disagreeable to travel during the dry season, on account of the difficulty in getting provisions and finding pastures for the animals but I made up my mind to start under any circumstances on an excursion toward the northeast, knowing that the fresh grass would come up quickly after a few of the thunderstorms not infrequent at that season. Toward the end of June I selected a few of my strongest animals, and, leaving one of my Mexicans to take care of the remainder, started out with two. As luck would have it, a heavy storm drenched our first camp, and afterward the rain seemed almost to pursue me. Much to the delight of the Indians I visited, who had been praying and dancing for rain for a long time. One day I had the imposing spectacle of three thunderstorms coming up from different directions. The one in the south sent flashes of lightning out of its massive dark clouds over the clear sky, but after all, not much rain resulted. There was no difficulty in finding one's way from Guachalchik to Norogachik. At one place I noticed an Indian trail leading up a ridge apparently consisting of volcanic tuff. To facilitate the ascent, steps, now worn and old, had been cut for a distance of a couple of hundred feet. I made my way among the Indian ranches to Norogachik. 
the residence of the only priest living at present in the Tarahumare country. The name of the place contains an allusion to a certain rock in the vicinity. There is another priest who pays some attention to the Tarahumares, but he lives in Nanova, and makes only annual visits to baptize infants or marry their elders who wish for the blessings of the church. Chapter Zaya Priest and his family make the wilderness comfortable for us ancient remains similar to those seen in Sonora the climate of the Sierra Flora and Fauna Tarahumare agriculture ceremonies connected with the planting of corn deterioration of domestic animals native dogs of Mexico, called on the Padre and found him to be a very social, nice, energetic looking person with a tinge of the red man in his veins. He complained to me that the Indians were lazy about coming to mass. None of them paid taxes and there was no way of forcing them. Nearly all of them he considered heathens, and only about a thousand came to the feasts. They arrive in the village on the evening before, and hear vespers. Then they give themselves up to drinking, and on the feast day proper are not in a condition to go to church. He thinks there are some great men among the Tarahumares, but that, their mental faculties being entirely uncultivated, they are, as it were, rough diamonds. In the Padre's opinion not only all the Indians, but also the Mexicans living among them, will soon relapse into paganism altogether, living under rough conditions as he does. It is a lucky thing for the Padre that his physique is equal to emergencies. Once at the neighboring village of Tomashik where there are pillars he admonished the people, in a powerful sermon, to mend their ways, as they were coming out of the church. A scoundrel who resented the charges attacked him with a stick, but the Padre managed to disarm him and gave him such a sound thrashing with his assailant's own weapon that the latter had to keep his bed for a fortnight. He showed me his stately old adobe church, built in missionary times. The ceiling, however, was infested with myriads of bats, the smell of which was quite sickening, and I was glad to get out again. With him in the uttermost outpost of Christendom lived his aged mother and six sisters, and they treated us with all the hospitality their very limited means permitted. We especially enjoyed their homemade macaroni. In the family of the good priest lived a little Indian orphan girl, about five years old, as nice and sweet a child as one might wish to see. He was teaching her how to read and write, and she had learned her letters in two months. The padre, good-natured to officiousness, helped me to get Indians to be photographed. Fi also would insist upon arranging them before the camera. His efforts, however, were directed more toward achieving artistic triumph than scientific truth, and he wanted, for instance, to decorate the Indians with peacock feathers. He yielded, however, to my suggestion that turkey feathers would be more appropriate, and straightway ordered one of his turkeys to be caught and deprived of some of its tail feathers. The only way in which I could show my appreciation of the disinterested kindness of the family was by photographing them, too. It was a new sensation to them and the ladies asked to have it done next day, as they wanted to arrange their hair and prepare themselves properly. After them it was the turn of the president of the village to look pleasant, but at this juncture the camera met with an accident. The ring holding the lens broke and fell out. This happening miles away from civilization was decidedly annoying, but the sisters proved themselves equal to the occasion, their father having been a tinsmith. They had picked up the trade and had tools, and the ring was soldered on so well that it lasted until I returned to the United States the following year. Norogachik is situated in the most populous part of the Tarahumare country, and its president exercises authority over the large surrounding district. He told me that his municipality counted 4.168 souls, among them about 300 Mexicans, 
With the help of a very intelligent Mexican I made a rough calculation of the number of Indians belonging to Tomashik and Guachochik, next neighbors of Norogachik, and estimated in the former 350, and in the latter 250 families, counting each family as consisting of eight members. This would give us a population of 4.800, thus the most populous part of the Tarahumare country, including the three municipalities of Norogachik, Tomashik, and Guachochik would contain a population of about 8.500 Indians. As the president of Norogachik is an honorable man and speaks the native language, he exercised great influence over them, and on one occasion, when they had gathered in large numbers and threatened to avenge some abuse, he was able to avert disaster. Nature had endowed him with the doubtful blessing of bloodshot eyes, a feature generally attributed to powerful sorcerers, and this was perhaps more a point in his favor than otherwise with the Indians. One day he took us to the top of a hill where there were some stones set in circles, about one foot above and half a foot under the ground. They reminded us of similar stone arrangements we had come upon in Sonora, but these were larger and more primitive. Altogether there were nine circles, varying in size from nine to thirteen feet in diameter. One, however, measured only five feet across, and the stones forming it were fully two feet above the ground. Close by was another similar small circle and some little distance off still another. On a small mesa I found a flint arrow point. There were also some potsherds there, but of the same kind as those used by the people of today. The natives rightly count only three seasons the dry, the rainy, and the winter. The first lasts from March till June, and is very warm and windy. Throughout July and August one can generally count on thunderstorms and heavy rains, while the mornings are bright. The rains then rarely extend over a large territory but are confined to local showers, a circumstance very annoying to the agricultural inhabitants, who often see dark clouds rolling up, apparently full of moisture, yet resulting in nothing but gusts of wind, a ridge may change the course of the clouds, sometimes one valley may be flooded with rain, while not far away the heat is drying up everything, during September and October more constant rains occur, and may last more or less for a week at a time. In the beginning of the wet season July and August the rains come from the southwest, but later on northeastern winds bring rain. In winter there are constant winds from the southeast to the north, somewhat trying until one gets used to them. Snow is by no means unknown, and Indians have been known to freeze to death when caught out intoxicated. The climate in the Sierra, although not so pleasant on account of the constant winds, is extremely salubrious the heat never exceeding 97 degrees F while the nights are deliciously cool. Lung diseases are here unknown. When I asked an old American doctor in Guadalupe Y. Calvo about his experience in regard to the health of the people, he said, well, here in the mountains they are distressingly healthy, despite a complete defiance of every sanitary arrangement, with the graveyards, the sewers, and a tannery at the river's edge. No diseases originate here. When cholera reached the mountains some years ago, Nobody died from it. The people simply took a bath in Mexican fashion, and recovered, down in the barrancas. However, where the heat often becomes excessive, the climate is far from healthy, and I have seen even Indians ill with fever and ague, contracted generally during the rainy season. Between these two extremes, on the slopes of the Sierra, toward the warm country, at an elevation of 5.000 feet, I found the most delightful climate I ever knew. It was like eternal spring, the air pure and the temperature remarkably even. There is a story of a Mexican woman, who, settling in this part of the country, 
broke her thermometer because the mercury never moved and she therefore concluded that it was out of order. The pleasantness of the climate struck me particularly on one occasion. After a prolonged stay in the invigorating no windy climate of the Sierra, I had caught a cold the night before, and was not feeling very well as I dozed on the back of my mule while it worked its way down the mountainside, but the sleep and the delightful balmy air made me soon feel well again. At times a mild zephyr played around us, but invariably died out about sunset. The night was delightfully calm, toward morning turning slightly cooler, and there was nothing to disturb my sleep under a big fig tree but the bits of figs that were thrown down by the multitudes of bats in its branches. They were gorging themselves on the fruit, just as we had done the afternoon before. Journeying on the pine-clad highlands, the traveler finds nothing to remind him that he is in the southern latitudes except an occasional glimpse of an agave between rocks and the fantastic cacti, which, although so characteristic of Mexican vegetation, are comparatively scarce in the high Sierra. The nopal cactus, whose juicy fruit, called tuna, and flat leaf-like joints are an important article of food among the Indians, is found here and there, and is often planted near the dwellings of the natives. There are also a few species of echinocactus and mammillaria but on the whole the cacti form no conspicuous feature in the higher altitudes of the Sierra. Along the streamlets which may be found in the numerous small valleys we met with the slender ash trees, beside alders, shrubs, unimus with brilliant red capsules, willows, etc. Conspicuous in the landscape was still the madrona, with its pretty, strawberry-like, edible berries. Flowers on the whole are not abundant in the Sierra. The modest yellow mimulus along the watercourses is the first to come and the last to go. Various forms of columbine aquagia and meadow rufelictrum should also be remembered. In August and September I have seen the sloping hills of the Sierra northwest of the Pueblo of Penalacic Penalacic, Benala Face, i.e. the outline of a prominent rock nearby, covered with large crimson flowers, and also certain yellow ones, called bogies, making the country appear like a garden. I noticed in the same locality two kinds of lovely lilies, one yellow and one containing a single large red flower. The Tarahumir had names for all these plants, before all, however, should be mentioned the Carmen Red Amaryllis. Like the crocus and the snowdrops of northern climates it appears before the grass is green. It is a perfect treat to the eye to meet now and then in this dry and sandy country, and at such a chilly elevation, this exquisitely beautiful flower which is here appreciated only by the hummingbirds, edible plants, species of menta, chinopodium, circium, for instance, and the common watercress, are, at a certain time of the year, numerous, but fruits and berries are rare, blackberries being the most common ones, animal life is not particularly plentiful in the Sierra, still, deer, bears, and mountain lions are fairly common, and there are many kinds of squirrels and rats. The jaguar filizonza is found now and then on the summits of the barrancas. Eagles, hawks, turkeys, blackbirds, and crows are the most noticeable birds. The turkey is called by the Tarahumares, Chivai, by the Mexicans of the Sierra of Chihuahua, Guasholot, while farther south he is designated Cocono. Now and then the brilliant green drogon is met with. There are many species of woodpeckers, all familiar to and named by the Tarahumares. The giant woodpecker is seen in the more remote parts, but it is on the point of being exterminated, because the Tarahumares consider his one or two young such a delicacy that they do not hesitate to cut down even large trees to get at the nests. The Mexicans shoot them because their plumage is thought to be beneficial to health, 
it is held close to the ears and the head in order to impart its supposed magnetism and keep out the maleficent effects of the wind. In the pairing season these birds keep up a chattering noise, which to my ears was far from disagreeable, but very irritating to a Mexican whom I employed. He used to shoot the birds because they annoyed him. Corn is the most important agricultural product of the Tarahumares. The average crop of a family may be estimated at six or twelve fanegas. One exceptionally rich Tarahumare, now dead, is said to have raised as much as four hundred fanegas a year. But this was a fact unique in the history of the tribe. The people also raised beans, squashes, chile, and tobacco, all on an exceedingly small scale. On the highlands, the primitive plow already described page 121 is still used sometimes, though it is rapidly being superseded by plows of Mexican pattern. In the arroyos and barrancas, where the condition of the land makes plowing impossible, the Indians use the ancient mode of agriculture, still in vogue among remote natives of Mexico and called coamular. They cut down the trees, clear a piece of land from brushwood, and leave it in this condition until just before the wet season sets in. Then they burn the wood, which by that time is well dried up, and plant the corn in the ashes. They simply make a hole in the earth with a stick, drop a few grains of corn into it, and close it up with the foot. Of the usual number of grains I am not aware, the Tepehuans use four. Their hoes are generally bought from the Mexicans or else homemade the natural knotted growths of tree limbs being utilized. Women never assist in plowing, though they may be seen helping in the fields with the weeding and hoeing, and even with the harvesting. In the Sierra a piece of land may yield good crops for three years in succession without manure, but in the broad mountain valleys and on the mesas a family can use the same field year after year for twenty or thirty seasons. On the other hand, down in the barrancas, a field cannot be used more than two years in succession because the corn plants in that time are already suffocated with weeds. The planting is done from the middle of April to the first week in July, and the harvest begins about the first week in October and lasts until the beginning of December. Communal principles prevail in clearing the fields. In plowing each furrow in a field is plowed by a different man in corn planting, in hoeing, weeding, harvesting, gathering wood for feasts, in fishing and in hunting. If a man wants to have his field attended to, the first thing he has to do is to prepare a good quantity of the national stimulant, a kind of beer called tesvino. The more of this he has, the larger the piece of land he can cultivate, for the only payment his helpers expect and receive is tesvino. The master of the house and his sons always do first one day's work alone, before their friends and neighbors come to help them. Then they begin in earnest to clear the field of stones, carrying them in their arms or blankets, and cut down the brushwood. Tesvino is brought out into the field, and is skit, and the men, all very much under the influence of the liquor, work with the animation of a heap of disturbed ants. When the work of hoeing and weeding is finished, the worker sees the master of the field, and, tying his arms crosswise behind him, load all the implements, that is to say, the hoes, upon his back, fastening them with ropes. Then they form two single columns, the landlord in the middle between them, and all facing the house. Thus they start homeward. Simultaneously the two men at the heads of the columns begin to run rapidly forward some thirty yards, cross each other, then turn back, run along the two columns, cross each other again at the rear and take their places each at the end of his row. As they pass each other ahead and till the rear of the columns they beat their mouths with the hollow of their hands and yell. As soon as they reach their places at the foot, the next pair in front of the columns starts off, running in the same way and thus pair after pair performs the tour, 
the procession all the time advancing toward the house. A short distance in front of it they come to a halt, and are met by two young men who carry red handkerchiefs tied to sticks like flags. The father of the family, still tied up and loaded with the hose, steps forward alone and kneels down in front of his house door. The flag bearers wave their banners over him, and the women of the household come out and kneel on their left knees, first toward the east, and after a little while toward each of the other cardinal points, west, south, and north. In conclusion the flags are waved in front of the house. The father then rises and the people untie him, whereupon he first salutes the women with the usual greeting, Quire, or Quire of it. Now they all go into the house, and the man makes a short speech thanking them all for the assistance they have given him, for how could he have gotten through his work without them? They have provided him with a year's life that island with the wherewithal to sustain it, and now he is going to give them Tesvino. He gives a drinking gourd full to each one in the assembly, and appoints one man among them to distribute more to all. The same ceremony is performed after the plowing and after the harvesting. On the first occasion the tied man may be made to carry the yoke of the oxen. On the second he does not carry anything. The southern Tarahumers, as well as the northern Tepehuans, at harvest time, tie together some ears of corn by the husks. Two and two. The ears are selected from plants which have at least three or four ears. And after a while Tesvino is made from them. At the harvesting feast, the stalks of these plants are strewn on the ground, as well as stalks of squash plants and over them the people dance Kuvala. The Tarahumir takes good care of his domestic animals and never kills one of them, unless it be for a sacrifice. Sheep and goats are kept at night in enclosures or caves. The shepherd follows his flock wherever the animals choose to find their food, and there are no better herdsmen than the Tarahumirs, who wisely trust to the natural instinct of the beasts. They do not pride themselves on breeds. It is astonishing to notice the number of rams with two pairs of horns among the tribe. In every flock two or three specimens may be observed, one pair bending forward, the other to the side. I have seen some with three pairs of horns, near Nanova, where the Indians are much Mexicanized. They make butter and cheese, using the rennets from the cow, sheep, and deer, but they do not drink the milk, saying that it makes them stupid, and they are watchful to prevent their children from drinking it. Dogs are not much liked except for hunting. A great number of them hang around the houses but they have to make their own living as best they can. They are of the same mongrel class found everywhere among the Indians of today. They are generally of a brownish color and not large, but some of them are yellow and with ears erect. The so-called dogs of Chihuahua, which command quite a price among dog fanciers, are found only in the capital of the state. They are small pet dogs and very timid, with large ears and prominent eyes. I understand that the yellowish-brown are considered the purest breed but they are found in many different colors, from snow white and black and white to dark brown. They are said to have a small cavity on the top of the head, though according to some authorities this is not an unfailing mark of the breed, which seems to be indigenous. The illiterate Mexican, in his tendency to connect everything good with Montezuma, thinks that the pure dogs of Chihuahua are descendants of those which were left behind by that regent near Casas Grandes at the time when he started south which afterward became wild and degenerated into the prairie dogs of today. Another dog indigenous to Mexico is the hairless dog, also a pet, found throughout the republic among the Mexicans. It is credited with possessing curative properties, for which reason people keep them in their beds with them at night. 
Chapter XII The Tarahumares still afraid of me Don Andres Madrid to the rescue Mexican robbers among the Tarahumares mode of burial in ancient caves visit to Nanova the Indians change their minds about me, and regard me as a rain god what the Tarahumares eat a pretty church in the wilderness I find at last a reliable interpreter and proceed to a little Indian. As I traveled along I found the natives unobliging and afraid of me, one man who had hit himself, but was after a while forced to reappear, bluntly asked. Are you not the man who kills the fat girls and the children? At another time I was taken for Pedro Chaparro, the famous robber, who had notoriously deceived the Indians. The guide took only a half-heart interest in me, as he feared that by being seen with me he was ruining his trade with the natives, who were especially suspicious about my writing in my notebook, taking it as a proof of my design to take their land away from them. Still, I accomplished a good deal and made interesting observations though the difficulties under which I had to labor were quite exasperating. It was a positive relief, when in the beginning of August, six weeks after my start from Guachalchik, I arrived at Guachalchik Guacho Sancudo, a small mosquito, one of the stations where the bullion trains stop on their travels between Batopilas and Karatik, the man then in charge of this rather lonely-looking place, Andres Madrid, turned out to be very interesting, born of Tarahumare parents, in the town of Karatik. He had received quite a liberal Mexican education and was virtually a Mexican, though in hearty sympathy with his native tribe. His grandfather had been a noted shaman, or medicine man, whom Don Andres, as a boy, had accompanied on his travels. He was intelligent, lively and imaginative, of a strong humorous vein, and very entertaining, generous in giving information about the Indians, and speaking the native language. He would have made an ideal interpreter except for the fact that he grew tired too easily, only by piecemeal and when having an abundance of time could an ethnologist expect to take advantage of his accomplishments, as he was honest, and helpful to the Indians, and besides was a representative of the Mexican authorities, the Indians had a limited respect, nay, adoration, for him, knowing all that happens in the Sierra, he had already heard of me some time ago, and laughed at the cannibalistic propensities attributed to me, he immediately sent a messenger to El Capitan Nararichik, to advise him of my arrival, and to request him to tell the Indians to present themselves to be photographed by a man who came from Porfirio Diaz, a name to conjure with in Mexico, who wanted to know all about the Tarahumares. Nararichik is an insignificant pueblo, to which the Indians of this locality belong. The name means, where one was weeping, being taken under the wing of Don Andres benefited me in many ways. When the Indians from the hills all around could see my white tent close by his little home, they understood that I could not be so bad, or else the good Don Andres would not have anything to do with me. The Indians in the vicinity had recently gone through the sensation of fighting with four real robbers, who had several times succeeded in plundering storehouses while the owners were off at some feast. At last the Indians had caught them. The thieves traveled on foot but had a packed horse which carried all the blankets and handkerchiefs stolen, the total value of which ran up to a 112. 65 Tarahumares had banded together in the course of four or five hours, and obliged the robbers to take refuge in a cave, from which they defended themselves with rifles for several hours. The Tarahumares first threw stones at them, as they did not want to waste their arrows. Finally Don Andres, who had been sent for, arrived at the place and induced the robbers to surrender, but only with difficulty could he prevent the Tarahumares from attacking them. What does it matter? They said, 
If one or two of us are killed, cowards as the tar of who wears are when few in number, they do not know fear when many of them are together, they are harmless when not interfered with, but neither forget nor forgive an injury. On several occasions they have killed white men who abused their hospitality, and they even threatened once, when exasperated by abuses, to exterminate all the whites in some sections of their domain. The robbers were taken by an escort of Indians to the little town of Karakak, and from there sent to Kuzawariachik, where a bright pole is to be tried. This place is about a hundred miles from Nororachik, and as the Indians during the next weeks were called to be present at the trial as witnesses, it annoyed them not a little. They were sorry they had not killed the evildoers, and it would even have been better, they said, to have let them go on stealing. In the fight the gobernator had got a bullet through his line. I saw him a fortnight afterward, smoking a cigarette and on the way to a recovery, and after some days he, too, walked to Kuzawariachik. A few months later the robbers managed to dig themselves out of the prison, on an excursion of about ten miles through the picturesque Arroyo de las Iglesias. I passed seventeen caves, of which only one was at present inhabited. All of them, however, had been utilized as dwellings before the construction of the road to Batopilas had driven the Indians off. I saw also a few ancient cave dwellings. Of considerable interest were some burial caves near Nororachik, especially one called Nororachik where the dead are dancing. A Mexican had been for six years engaged there in digging out salt petra, with which he made powder and the cave was much spoiled for research when I visited it, but I was able to take away some thirty well-preserved skulls and a few complete skeletons, the bodies having dried up in the salt petra. Some clothing with feathers woven in and some bits of obsidian and of blue thread were found, but no weapons or utensils, according to the miner, who appeared to be trustworthy. He had excavated more than a hundred corpses, they were generally found two and a half feet below the surface and sometimes there were others underneath these. With many of them he found their ornaments made of shells, such as the tar of wares of two-day use, besides some textile made of plant fiber, and a jar with beans. A few months later at Aboriakic tar of where there is mountain cedar I examined a burial cave in which the dead were interred in a different manner from that dis.